Well, hello, and thank you for joining us at the Life Church Canton podcast. My name is Jared, and I'm one of the pastors at Life Church and your host for the show. And uh, if you have not already subscribed, please do so if you would like to give to Life Church. Uh, you make a massive impact in the lives of others when you give. And so I want to encourage you to do that. You can go to lifechurchcanton.org give to find out more about how your giving makes an impact as well. Uh, today, you're going to be hearing uh, a sermon, a, a special sermon. It's going to be the last sermon from Pastor Daniel Figbui. He's been with us for about two years, and uh, we've really enjoyed his, his presence on our team and on the stage uh, preaching in our church as well. And uh, he's just uh, given us so much to think about in terms of who God is and how God impacts us in the church and in our communities. Uh, but he is going off to another venture. And so we're excited for him. But uh, today, what you're going to hear is his last sermon. And we said, hey, Daniel, what do you want to preach about? Uh, what would you like to say to Life Church Canton? And so this is what he wanted to say. I don't want to spoil it too much, uh, but I hope you enjoy this message. And, um, and then also, I want to remind you, if you don't um, always listen to the very end, at the end, I do uh, just a little bit of announcements, and I always remind you to connect with us. And so if you don't usually get to that part in the podcast, I'm going to tell you right now, we would love for you to connect with us by going to lifechurchcanton.org slash now. And at the top, there's a button that says connect card. And uh, if you're looking to get plugged into a community uh, whether in person or digitally, maybe you don't feel comfortable coming in person yet, you can connect with us digitally and we will connect with you. We'll help you take your next steps to be part of our community, whatever that looks like. Uh, so go ahead and click on that information. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and then we will be in touch with you. Now, enjoy the sermon. Our text today will be Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who begin a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Say that with me. Verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who begin a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege of sharing your word. Thank you for the privilege of hearing your word. Thank you for the privilege of being among these, your people, my people. Thank you. We pray now, Lord, that the Spirit of God would use the word of God to reveal the Son of God and that everything we do today will be done to the glory of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hello, Life Church. How are you? Well, as you know, this is my last sermon with you. 
final sermon here at Life Church Canton. And in the days leading to the announcement last week and the days following, there has been a subtle sadness in my soul. In fact, as I sat down to figure out what I would call this sermon and where I would preach from, my heart, my mind was flooded with the faces of all of you people who I love, all my people, the stories that we've shared, the conversations that we had, the visits to uh, help someone who was in crisis, all of those things that we shared, and I began to mourn our proximity, that we will not be together as we used to. As I thought deeper about my time here, I started to really be thankful to the Lord that he brought us together in the first place, that he was good enough to allow me to experience joy through you. And so that sadness that I felt began to give way to joy. Joy in the fact that God sovereignly brought people who are from different walks of life together into a place to confirm his gospel and to show us that the gospel transcends race, gender, and any social economic status. That's an amen moment. So as we come to our end of our season together, as we think through this time that we've spent together, I want you to know that it has been a privilege to serve you as one of your pastors. And that I am thankful to God, as Paul is, for the joy that I have because of you. And so as I thought about the title for this sermon, what came to mind was simply a pastor's joy. A pastor's joy. And when I thought about where I would come from, what else than the epistle of joy itself, Philippians. Philippians written by Paul at a time when he was in prison, known as a prison epistle. Because of that, Paul writes to the Philippians in Caesarea Philippi while in prison in the city of Rome, suffering for the gospel due to no crime of itself. And the irony is, in those hard times, Paul pens a letter of joy. What an irony. Only a God-centered mind could have joy in the midst of being deserted by friends and family and being ostracized and even being locked up for the sake of the gospel. And so that's why this epistle is fondly referred to as an epistle of joy because Paul shares his joy. The word joy in some sense shows up 16 times in this small epistle. Over 16 times, joy in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, have joy in the Lord. I am joyful over you. Interesting. To say it's ironic, it's an understatement. Deserted, imprisoned, and even his enemies were using now this opportunity to try to destroy and undermine his legacy and his reputation. If there was anybody that had a reason to be sad, it was Paul. But he wrote an epistle of joy. He wrote to express his joy over the Philippians because God was at work in them. He wrote to emphasize the source of true joy, which is contentment in the Lord. And he wrote to exhort them 
that they would not allow anyone or anything to destroy their mutual joy in the Lord, namely pride and false teaching. Paul writes in an abundance of joy, and in so many sense, I speak to you this morning with an abundance of joy, having had the privilege to be among you. So today, though, we're going to focus on the reason for Paul's joy. Why was he joyful? How was he able to be joyful in the midst of the hardest times? And perhaps we can learn from this how we can even be joyful in the midst of sad times. Now, in order to do this, we're going to unpack three reasons that I see in this text. Three reasons for Paul's joy that are found in verses 3 through verse 6. So the first reason... The first reason for Paul's joy is that the Philippians participated in the gospel. They participated. Look with me, if you will, in verse 3 and 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel. Paul was thankful, joyously thankful, because the Philippians participated in the gospel. What does it mean to participate? And then nowadays, you get a trophy just for participating, right? You get a participation trophy. Y'all know about that? Kids like, hey, I showed up. Whoop-de-doo. Right? And you wonder why they can't hold up a job later on. I'm sorry. I'm on a, that's a soapbox. I'll leave that alone. Right? Oh, 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 Mr. Manager, I showed up. Well, whoop-de-doo, you're fired. If you've ever received a participation trophy, my apologies. Paul says you participated. Now, the Greek word here is the Greek word koinonia. The English word doesn't do it justice. Koinonia is better translated as intimate communion, an intimate partnership. You see, in the Bible, there are many words that are used to describe the church of God, people of God. We are called the body of Christ, the household of God, the children of God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people even. But at the heart of all of those titles is the Greek term, Koinonia. All of those words are intended to describe the unique union that we have with Christ and therefore with each other. We are called the body, yes, the household, yes, children, yes. But more than that, we are the koinonia, the fellowship, the union of God with people and people with each other. In fact, koinonia has a sense of sharing your life experiences and your life resources. What would the church look like right now if we could let our pain be your pain and your pain be my pain and my joy be yours? What would it look like if we were sharing each other's experience? Would we have the divide that we have in the American church? Rhetorical question. Of course not. Bring it closer home. If husband and wives had koinonia, one of the terms that I hate, and I hate saying the word hate. I hate saying the word hate. That's interesting. But one of the words that I hate is when you look at divorce papers, they'll say things like irreconcilable differences. What does that mean? We stop liking each other, essentially. But when you think about it, if koinonia, which is a word that's actually intended to describe the union between husband and wife, if you were truly sharing life experience, if my pain was your pain, if your pain was my pain, how would we ever be irreconcilable, having been already reconciled? Does that make sense? You know, I, I would never actually marry a couple until I, I, I strongly urged them to make a list of what they put in that worst category. You know how people say, for better, for worse? Is that fair? You, you know how people say that? It's like, oh, for better, for worse. So now list all of the worst. 
tell your spouse, I'm going to leave you for this, this, this. That will really put a damper in a, in a wedding ceremony, won't it? Because to be honest with you, when we get married, we, we are actually saying for better, for better. Amen. God bless you. You are my, you're my older saints in the Lord. Y'all been married for how long? How many years? Spontaneous. Six years? That's it? Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have judged. I'm so sorry. Uh, who's been married here for longer than 20 years? Woo! 47, 47, 47, no, 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 Huh? 41 years. Yeah! How you gonna hear 41 and not clap? Your joy is my joy. Your sorrow is my sorrow. 41 years. 41 years. 47 years. 50 years. My father and mother have been married for 60-something years. Now, let my mom tell it. The first marriage ain't work out, so they had to fix some things, and then they really been married for 40. But it's okay. It's okay. I've been married for 10 years, and we, we, we started our second marriage together. You know how that works? You're learning how to be married. Then you realize you are failing. Then you put a reset on this marriage. And you say, okay, this is our new marriage together. Okay? One of your pastors has only been married once. Let me be clear. I wasn't confessing that I have six wives, right? <laughs> Some of y'all are like, he's Nigerian. Ooh, he probably has eight of those. <laughs> Let's get back to this message. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to miss y'all. <laughs> but we're called the people of God, the household of God. But at the heart of that is koinonia, the sharing of life experience, an intimate relationship that's meant to describe the intimacy that we see in a marriage. Over 70 times in all of Paul's letter, he uses the word koinonia over and over again as a reminder that we are not just two parts that are brought together, but we have been made into one new person or new people. Expressly used to describe the church. This is how he describes his people. Now, that's the definition of koinonia. But what does it look like? What does koinonia look like in action? I'm glad you asked. Here are a few. Philippians 1, 7. So it is right that I should feel as I do about you, for you have a special place in my heart, because you share koinonia with me, the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the gospel. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that participation in the gospel, union in the gospel, koinonia in the gospel, means to live out and to defend the truth of the gospel. And in some sense, those are not mutually exclusive. You know the best testimony for the gospel is a sanctified life. Before you open your mouth to preach the gospel, can people see gospel truth in your life? Philippians 4, 14. What else does Cornelia look like? Paul says here, but it was right and commendable and noble for you to contribute, Cornelia, for my needs to share my difficulties with me. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that participation in the gospel, union in the gospel, partnership in the gospel, koinonia in the gospel means that you provide for each other's practical needs and you're hospitable to strangers. So when you see you belong, that is a staple of what it means to be a church. 
More than just visitors coming in, being hospitable, amen to God, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But more than that is that are we Christians hospitable to each other? Think about that. Sometimes in churches, we are more nice and kind to strangers who come in, which we ought to be, than your brothers and sisters that you're meant to do life with daily. Do you know a turning point in my life when my life and ministry started to really connect? John, you know this. Your wife tends to say things that are profound. As fancy as everybody thinks you are, she knows different. Amen? Don't say amen too loud, Liz. Don't say amen too loud. My wife said to me one time, she said, I wish you were as gracious at home as you were in the church. Because I've seen people say some real sideways things to you in the church, and you've been like, God bless them, I love them. I say to you, Something really nice, like, hey, I don't like that shirt. All of a sudden, you're like, well, you don't seem to like everything I do. I don't really sound like that when I'm being sinful. Uh, I tend to think I sound very debonair when I'm being sinful. Uh, That's sinful for me to think that. Um, And I realize that we put on masks, pun intended. We put on facades. Because we really don't have koinonia. You know why? Because koinonia is uncomfortable. When the Bible says iron sharpens iron, what do you think happens when iron hits iron? You think it's smooth sailing? You think it's like butter, like a hot knife and butter? No, it's not. You ever seen iron sharpen iron? Sparks are flying. There's heat, there's fire, there's pain, there's agitation. If we're being honest, many of us Christians walk away from each other because of irreconcilable differences. What does it look like for you to stand there and fight and participate in the gospel? Here's another verse. Philippians 4, 15, 16, looking at what koinonia looks like in practice. Paul says, you know you Philippians, That from the time of my first mission work around you, or among you, in Macedonia, how no church shared koinonia in supporting my ministry except for you. You sent contribution, koinonia again, repeatedly to take care of my needs even while I was in Thessalonica. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that participation in the gospel also includes consistent giving to the ministry of the gospel. And that looks different in many different ways. That looks like caring for those who cannot care for themselves so that they can do the work. That looks like supporting missions. That looks like so many things. It looks like many of you who spent your time and your efforts and even your money here to promote the gospel. It's participation in the gospel. It's giving of your life. It is sharing of your life resources with each other. You are no less a minister just because you don't preach. Some go and some send them. You ever heard that before? Some go and some send them. Every time you read about Paul taking the gospel to a new place, if you focus only on Paul and you don't realize (coughs) that there are Christians who are funding that, they are just as much gospel ministers as those who go. Amen. 
The coolies shake their head because they know more about missions than most people. They understand that, that it takes giving of oneself, not just your money, but of yourself in order to be able to push the gospel forward. So corner the ear has to do with that. So here's a question for you. Paul has this type of intimate relationship with these Philippians, this gospel-centered relationship. Is that the type of relationship that you have with each other? Do we care for each other? Is your pain my pain? Do I actually actively? So the Bible talks about helping those who need, but it actually goes beyond that and says, hey, you should actually look out to see if there's a need and not just wait for one. Amen. Got a little uncomfortable or are you good? Shall I go on? Is this the type of relationship that we have? Paul and the Philippians had a common union with Christ, and because of that, they had a common union with each other. They were united with Christ and therefore united with each other. You know how you become hospitable? By being hospitable to the work of the Spirit in your life, which allows you to be naturally hospitable to other people. You know what my wife's number one thing for me is? What her number one uh, uh, important thing that I do, that everything else could be wrong? You need to spend time with the Lord. If you do that, I can trust that you're going to care for his daughter. Similarly, baby, spend time with the Lord because you're nicer when you do. (laughs) Nothing like being before the Lord to show you your mess so much so that you have grace for everybody else. You know when I know that you haven't spent time with the Lord? When you start getting judgmental and critical about everybody else but yourself. Amen. You got everything to say about everybody else, but you've got nothing to say about your own mess in the mirror. They had communion with God, an intimate fellowship, so much so that if you look in verse 3, Paul says, my God, personal. I'm thanking my God for your benefit. So the first reason for Paul's pastoral joy over the Philippians is what? Their communion and participation in the gospel. Well, this brings us to our second reason. What's the second reason for Paul's joy over the Philippians? It's because of their perseverance in the gospel. So that they're participated and then they're persevering in the gospel. Look at verse 5b, the latter part. He says, I am joyful in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. You see, in this verse, Paul highlights the perseverance of the Philippians, even in the midst of internal and external conflict, conflict that threatened their mutual joy in the Lord. From the first time the Philippians heard this this gospel, 10 years had gone by. For over a decade, their faithfulness to the gospel has only increased. In fact, later on in the letter, Paul says, I know that you always wanted to care for me, naturally and spiritually, but you never had the opportunity. But now you got the opportunity, and now you've just, you've just humbled me. And then Paul says, that famous verse that people quote out of context all the time, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. You know what Paul was saying there? I can be content because Christ strengthens me. I'm content in bad situations, in great situations. You see, the ebbs and flow of life doesn't make my heart ebb and flow, doesn't make my faithfulness in God ebb and flow. I am content because God is working. And if God wants to fix it, he'll fix it. And if he didn't fix it, it's because he didn't want to fix it. Oftentimes, we're trying to change the situation, but God is using the situation to change us. Amen. Yeah. 
10 years of faithfulness. They continued in the gospel. They persevered in the gospel. They had not wavered. They eagerly partnered with Paul, evangelizing their city. And even a decade later, they were continuing to evangelize their city. Question for you. Has your dedication to the ministry of the gospel waned? Has it? Or are you even more passionate to know it, to live it, and to share it? Is the gospel your silent secret? Or is it something that you live in such a way that people can't help but say, hey, sis, tell me, who's your God? You're different. You talk different. You walk different. You don't seem to be disturbed by the ebbs and flows of the world. You seem to be okay when COVID hit. Not that you weren't concerned, humanly speaking, but it didn't affect your faith in God because you understood that you were never promised a perfect life. Amen. What you were promised is union with a perfect God. And I don't know about you, but that trumps a perfect life any given day. Actually, that's an oxymoron. If God's the only thing that's perfect, can your life be ever perfect without him? Rhetorical question. But thanks for shaking your head. I appreciate that. (laughs) Brings us to our third and final reason for Paul's joy over the Philippians. He's joyful because of their participation in the gospel. He is joyful because of their perseverance in the gospel. And finally, he is joyful because of their perfection by the gospel. Romans 1, 6 says it this way. For I am confident. Wow. I don't think you understand what he just said here. I know and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt of this thing. If I don't know nothing, Paul says in Ebonics, if I don't know nothing, I know that he, God, the antecedent is in, chapter, is in verse 3, that God who began a good work in you will perfect it, keep on perfecting it, mature is that word, until the day of Jesus Christ. You know when you can stop maturing? When Jesus shows up. You got permission to stop maturing when Jesus cracks the sky and shows up visibly. Until then, keep on pushing. You see what Paul does here? He roots his very joy in God. In the reality that God has been working and will continue to work and perfect it in the Philippians. Friends, I am confident of that in you. That our God, who started a good work in us, doesn't stop because Daniel ain't here. In fact, I might need to get out of the way. Amen? Paul's confidence is in God's immutable power and plan to perfect his good work in you and I. Immutable, unchanging, doesn't change, never changes. Confidence has an interesting tense to it. It's perfect tense in Greek, which means that he was convinced way back when and is still convinced now. It is a snapshot of Paul's stance. When he looks at the Philippians, he is convinced from the first day he opened his mouth to share the gospel with him to right now that God's been working, he's working, and will continue to work. Because God doesn't finish what he doesn't, doesn't finish what he didn't start and doesn't start what he doesn't finish. 
Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say God doesn't start when he can't finish. Because when you put can't in there, that means there's something that God can't do. Do you understand that point? So God isn't making a calculation and say, oh, I can't finish that, so I won't start. Everything God starts, he finishes. We start buildings and we don't finish. We start marriages and we don't finish. We start jobs and we don't finish. We start pastoring and we don't finish. But there is a God who finishes everything that he starts. And one of the greatest work that that God has thought to start is salvation and redemption in you and I. Because if you could lose your salvation, you would lose it. On my best day, I am not perfect. Two people are like, oh, that's shocking. <laughs> that you would think you were. <laughs> on my best day, on your best day, we fail. We are futile. We are flawed. Even the best things that we do are sometimes mixed with the most selfish of intentions. So I find comfort in a God who keeps me, especially because I can't keep myself. I find peace in a sovereign God who has said to me, nothing, no one can separate you from my love. Nothing, he says, can pluck you out of my hand. Friends, isn't that wonderful? That you were never worthy of his love, so you could never be unworthy of his love. What a God that loves you to put himself in your place to take on your suffering that you and I rightly deserve, and then the nerve of him to now say, I no longer call you friends, but you are my children, my family. You've been united. There is koinonia now between a holy, perfect God and imperfect people. Amen, somebody. Paul says this good work that God started in you will continue until the day of Christ. Well, what's this good work? Well, I'm, cl I'm glad you asked. So what is this good work? Paul is confident that this good work, the work of the gospel, the ongoing salvation and redemption of ourself, so that our lives would be completely pleasing to God. Uh, God is working in us to do his will. Uh, one of my favorite verses, Philippians 2.13. Look at what it says here in the Amplified Translation. For it is not your strength, but it is God who is effectively at work in you. Where is he working? Out there somewhere? In here. Right? Because sometimes we talk about the work of the cross and what he did for us. Sometimes we forget what he's doing in us. Okay? For it is not your strength, but God who is effectively at work in you, both to do what? To will and to work. In other words, to strengthen, to energize, to create in you a longing and an ability to fulfill his purpose for his good pleasure. Translation, it takes God to obey God. It takes God to please God. You may think you can please God, but it takes the power of God in you to open your eyes to see what's actually good and pleasing to God. 
The work of the gospel is also for us to be continually conformed to the image of Christ. Ongoing work is that we fell from that image of God in the garden. The image is still there, marred and distorted. But in Christ, that image is being renewed, and you are being conformed to the image of God. I love the way that Romans 8 says it. He says, verse 28, he says, We know, another word of confidence, not that we think, not that we hope, not that we suggest, but we know that God works all things for good for the ones who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, he's about to get a little tricky here. Look at verse 29. Because we know this, because God knew them in advance, and he decided in advance that they would be conformed to the image of God. You're not plan B, you're not plan C, you're plan A. That way, the son would be the first among the brethren. Christ is the archetype. You are being conformed to his image. The day you look in the mirror and see Jesus, you can stop. But at that point, if you're Jesus, you'll keep going. This good work will continue until the day of the Lord. I don't have time to unpack fully what that means, but essentially what it means is until the return of Christ, we will keep on being perfected. That word perfected means mature. We will continue to mature and mature in the gospel. I preached a sermon about six or seven months ago, and it ruffled a little feathers. Here's what I want to clarify. I'm not saying that I'm mature spiritually. I'm more mature than I used to be, and every day I'm maturing. What I am saying is that Bible has called us, God has called us to mature daily, and he has given us everything that we need in order to mature. So if you hear a preacher tell you to mature, say amen, you too. <laughs> Don't say it loud and, and, and while he's preaching. That's kind of disrespectful. It might show that you're immature. But anyway, <laughs> this is a journey, and no one has arrived. Not a single one. If you have arrived, please see me after service because there's some concerns that I have. <laughs> but no one has arrived. You know why? Paul, the apostle who writes 13 of the epistles of the New Testament, you know what he said at the end of his life? I press on still because I have not arrived. If Paul ain't arrived, I got news for you, you ain't arrived. God continues to progressively work in us. And I love this verse here. And interesting enough, this is Pastor Nathan's uh, thesis statement. I didn't realize it until I was reading it earlier today. Ephesians 4, 13. This work, the gospel work, the regenerative work of God to continue to mature us, one, to bring us into him and to mature us, this work will continue until we all come to such a unity in our faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, that we would perfect, that's that word perfect, we would mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. The standard is Jesus Christ. You husband, you wife, you children, you parents, our standard is Jesus Christ. Your standard isn't the person standing next to you who's doing a little better than you are. Your standard is Jesus Christ. So don't love like somebody else and say, that's good enough. Those are minimum payments. You know what those are? Like if you have a credit card and you do minimum payments, you'll always be in debt. Yeah? The standard is Jesus Christ. That's who we aim for. And even if we miss it, we keep aiming. 
because God is at work in you both to will and to give you the power to pursue the things that are pleasing to him. This is the calling for every single pastor, every single Christian, if you will. It's a joy to see progression in the Lord, to see growth in the Lord, to watch even from two years ago where I was and see God's work in my life now, to see where you were and see God's work in your life now, to see the progressive work of God and the gospel in life. That is a joy. And Life Church, you have been a joy to me. <laughs> clap for God, clap for yourself. In summary, the reason for Paul's pastoral love, pastoral joy over the Philippians is because God has sovereignly orchestrated their participation in the gospel, their perseverance in the gospel, and their perfection, their maturity in the gospel. And this is the reason for my joy over you, that I'm seeing God continue to cause us to participate in the gospel. I'm seeing God cause us to persevere in the gospel. And I'm seeing the perfecting, progressive work of God by the gospel. So friends, keep participating. Keep persevering. And keep on being perfected by the gospel. And all this is possible because God who started a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Amen. Here are my action steps. They're going to shock you. You'll be real surprised about these action steps. Action step number one, participate in the gospel. <laughs> Here are ways that I practically do that. If koinonia has to do with your pain being my pain, my pain being your pain, I have found Be the Bridge to be one of those things where we can talk about each other's pain and our ignorance of things. I have found Life Care Group, which happens at 9.30 in the morning here, where we get to share what's going on. And our sister Lynn has, has, has been so kind to show up and do some, some workshops. It's great, folks. Don't miss out on that. It's a great opportunity to be around people who care for you. That's koinonia, where your life becomes my life. My experiences are your experiences. We have shared experiences. And guess what we have? When you have shared experience, you have shared empathy for people and grace for people. And you give them room to grow. Secondly, persevere in the gospel. Persevere in the gospel. Don't get tired. Friends, we've been through a lot in the last two years. As a church, as individuals, as pastors, as staff, we have been through a lot. If not for the grace of God to persevere, we would all be gone. If you're here and you're a partner here, I want to encourage you to push in deeper. Don't push away. Because if God called you here, he's called you here for a season and a reason. And until he says that reason is over or that season over, you are obligated by the love of God to push in. Discomfort is not a reason to leave. It's a reason to ask questions. It's a reason to push in. But you have prom I promise you, Jesus was uncomfortable on the cross. I need you to understand something. Daniel Fagbui is not leaving. I hate talking to third person. It sounds so arrogant. Forgive me. 
I am not leaving here because I'm uncomfortable. Discomfort makes me ask questions about where God's calling me and if God has called me to stay. If my love and my joy here was circumstantial, I would have been gone a long time ago. My brothers and I, Jared, Nathan, and, and Rich, and I, we have had hard conversations, and it has been a joy because with every one of those conversations, we get to see the grace of God even more. I share that because you need to understand that we are in each other's lives for a season. That season can be short, it can be long. And if you choose to leave anywhere, not just this church, anywhere in the world, do not leave just because you're uncomfortable. Leave because God's calling you somewhere else. Do your best to leave as well as you can. But you also know that when you are here, wherever you are, push in deeply. Hunker down. Grind it out. Then you can walk away and say, the Lord, I have done the best that I can do by your strength. But until you do that, you're just going to take that discomfort to somewhere else. There's no such things as perfect churches. Amen? Because if it was, the day you go in, it stops being perfect. <laughs> you can't say amen, say ouch. Which brings me to my final step, action step. Be perfected by the gospel. Allow the gospel of Christ to perfect us, to mature us, to cause us to grow deeper. I love the way one pastor says it. I'm not sinless, but since I've known God, I sin less. Is there a trajectory of growth in our lives? Well, there are ebbs and flows. That's normal. Some days I don't recognize myself if my sin shows up enough. But is there a progressive growth in who God has called you to be? And is there joy in your heart despite the circumstances that you are not defined or described by the pain or the suffering you're going through. That in so many ways, we are often hoping that God will change our circumstances when he's actually using the circumstance to change us. We all have our individual testimonies of how God has brought us from a mighty long way. And if you don't have that testimony, my hope is that you'll have that testimony very soon. But for those of us who are in Christ, our joy is not tied to circumstances. Our joy is rooted in the very character and nature of God, and God's character and nature is immutable. It does not change. But if you don't know Christ, you are going to be subjected to the circumstances that you are in. Your joy is circumstantial at best, and at worst, it doesn't exist. Here's my encouragement to you. If you hear my voice even now, I'm not intending to force you into a decision with Christ, because if I can force you in, someone else can force you out. 
What I am asking you to do is take this time to pause and ask the question. Because the Bible is clear. And Augustine says it this way. You have made us for you, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You have been made for God by God. And whether you feel like you got it figured out right now or not, at some point you will have to wrestle with the fact that you are not who God has made you to be. And at that point, you either be dejected or decide to accept the free gift of salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. If you would stand, please. Father, I pray for all my brothers and sisters who are in this koinonia, this union, this fellowship with Christ. Those who you have brought into participation and who you are persevering and who you are daily perfecting. I pray, God, that we would not get weary in good doing, but that we would keep on pushing because you are at work in us, both giving us the will and the ability to do what is right and what is good and what is pleasing. But now, God, I pray for every soul here who has not encountered you at all. I pray, God, that you would meet them even now, that they would encounter you in such a way that it's undeniable that you are calling them, wooing them, effectually calling them unto yourself. Sovereign Lord, would you have your way in this place? Strengthen us. Give us understanding. And friend, if God is calling you now, you may pray like this. Pray however way you're comfortable. There is no formula, but you may say to God, simply, save me. Save me from my sin, the penalty of it. Save me from my sin, the power of it. Save me from the pool of sin. Help me to rest in your finished work. Help this day to be a memorial of the day that I make a U-turn and move towards God rather than away from God. Friend, if you pray that prayer, we want to connect with you because we believe God is at work and we want to encourage you in this work of God. Father, thank you for the privilege of serving here among your people. Thank you for this grace. I pray, Lord, help me. I thank you, Lord. I thank you for this time. Thank you for the stories and the people who I will miss dearly. I thank you for the people that I never got a chance to meet whose stories would have been so impactful. Sovereign Lord, you know those things. Meet them where they are. And as I exit this church, this stage, Lord, I pray that you would give this place a spirit of perseverance, a spirit of participation, and that you would continue to perfect all of us in the journey to know you better and therefore know ourselves. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people one more time say, Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us. And I, I want you to, uh, to get connected if you um, were inspired by anything that Pastor Daniel said, uh, some of the action steps specifically that he encouraged you to take. And so, uh, again, I want to give you that website. It's lifechurchcanton.org slash now. And that's going to have the most up-to-date information for where you can go to get connected, to give, uh, to find out more about small groups. 
um, and to, uh, to volunteer as well. So uh, go check that out. And if you ever have any questions, reach out to us and let us know and we'll help you take your next steps. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and we'll see you right back here soon.